Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Welcome to the OsteoTalk podcast, proudly created by Osteopathy Australia. I'm your host, Emily Bergman. As osteopaths, we are in a truly privileged position to work with pregnant women and play a role in their journey. Through our healing hands-on work, advice and care, we can facilitate a positive and empowering experience for our pregnant patients. Today's guests are Daniela Aiello and Ash Bolton. They have built a successful Melbourne practice with a strong focus on women's health and pregnancy. They are generously giving back to our profession through their work with Osteopathy Australia, sharing their knowledge through a recent webinar, an OsteoLife article, and today's podcast. Following on from these fantastic resources, we explore in further detail some of the common clinical presentations seen in pregnant women, pelvic girdle and sciatic pain. Dan and Ash discuss these presentations and their assessment, treatment, and management strategies. Welcome to the podcast, Ash and Dan. Hi, guys. Thank you for having us. Wonderful to have you on here. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Sure, sure. Well, I'm Dan. The voice you're hearing is Dan. Um, (laughs) I started working... um, it's pretty much in my fifth year in a women's and children's clinic and I guess I'm immediately drawn to treating uh, pregnant women and post. Um, I've done like a variety of different postgrad courses with a strong focus on pregnancy. Um, I've been very fortunate, I've been able to follow around a midwife um, and I guess really immerse myself in the pregnancy world and I've got two little ones myself so I've experienced it firsthand. Um, I guess after treating a couple of obstetricians and midwives in our clinic throughout their pregnancies, we were, I guess, really thankful that um, they could see how much we as osteopaths can help. And uh, we've then gotten an influx of pregnant patients. And that's how we now, um, I guess, can run a clinic where we predominantly see pregnant women. Um, So it's been, what, 18 years now that I've closely worked with pregnant women and always learning um, and definitely feeling more and more confident of our role as osteos and just how much we can help, but always keen to learn more. And I think the more that us as as osteos can talk to each other and help educate each other, um, it's only going to help our own clinic and obviously strengthen the profession as well. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And yeah, my name's Ash. So um, I've always had a similar interest with pregnancy, especially um, yeah, in female health in general. Um, but yeah, I remember just always being really passionate about pregnancy, especially when I graduated, but I was also so afraid to treat pregnancy as well. So I remember one of my first ever patients was a really acute pelvic girdle pain pregnant patient. And um, yeah, I was so afraid to treat her. And I remember giving her the most basic treatment and um, thinking it was terrible, but you know, she came back the, the week after and she had improved. And I remember thinking, gosh, osteo can really, really help these pregnant women, especially when, you know, medication isn't an option for them. So um, yeah, since then I've just been super passionate about osteo's role in pregnancy and what a special thing or special role we can play in their pregnancy journey. And mm. um, yeah, really helping them out with their aches and pains, but also preventing pain and just giving them the most sort of, uh, yeah, pain-free pregnancy possible. Mm. And I think, yeah, we just have a really, um, really special role, I think, as an osteo and treating pregnant patients. So, yeah, myself, I've done lots of different courses um, and tried to focus a lot of my CPD on, on pregnancy after I graduated. And, yeah, like Dan said, we're just always learning and forever um, expanding our knowledge in this area. So, yeah, it's just really nice to be able to hopefully um, empower some other osteos to feel, you know, comfortable treating pregnancy and not be so afraid to, to treat them. So yeah, that's, I think our mission. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. It, it can be quite daunting working with pregnant women, particularly earlier in your career, if you hadn't have much exposure in student clinic or um, early on clinically. So, um, you know, this, this podcast and your webinar and your article have been really fantastic. Okay. So we're yeah. going to start with talking about pelvic girdle pain. 
something that we would commonly see in practice with pregnant women. And I think something that women are also told that, well, you're just going to have to live with it. And, you know, once the baby arrives, then it will settle down. Um, But, you know, part of our role is to try and empower women and also relieve some of their discomfort while they're pregnant. So could you please explain or describe how you would explain pelvic girdle pain to a patient in a way that isn't going to generate too much fear? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I suppose pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy, a lot of women will think it's instability and their pelvis is unstable. Yeah, they're going to fall apart. Yeah. I was going to say, like, you'd be... If you didn't, mm. yeah, you'd be worried that you'd sneeze and your baby's going to fall out, which yeah. you know, may avoid some pain later on, but still that would be quite frightening for women. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I think they get told, you know, with all these hormonal changes that yeah, their, their joints are unstable. And um, it's not so much that they're unstable. I suppose it's just that the mechanics and the, and the, the muscle forces and whatnot, they change during pregnancy. So they are more um, predisposed to getting pain. So you know, 50% of pregnant women will experience pelvic girdle pain or low back pain during pregnancy. So it is quite common. And I think just educating them on what is actually happening in their body instead of, you know, yeah, like you said, like they're going to sneeze and, you know, their whole pelvis is going to fall apart. So really explain to them what is occurring in their body throughout their throughout their pregnancy and educating them on the, the really, um, yeah, like the biomechanical changes, yeah. the changes in the spine, the the, how the body is actually doing this in preparation for birth um, and it's a natural thing and we, we sort of we can't we're not going to stop that from occurring we're just going to accommodate those changes and sort of treat um, and accommodate yeah the sort of the expanding uterus so they're not predisposed they're less, sorry they're less predisposed to getting that pelvic girdle pain but yeah I think it's sort of just reassuring them that pelvic girdle pain is yeah, it's an umbrella term I suppose as opposed to um, yeah, any kind of specific term, but there's there's lots of different causes for pelvic girdle pain. It could be just you know a minor pubic symphysis strain, or it could be a, you know it varies. So or it could be a, a major separation of the pubic symphysis. So um, yeah, I think a lot of women do come in quite early and think, oh my gosh, I'm already getting pain. I'm gonna really you know fall apart by the end of it. But as osteos, I think addressing those you know those asymmetries and those um, sort of those dysfunctions early can really prevent them from stopping. Um, getting pelvic girdle pain or just having a really minor case. Okay, great. And I think a lot of women that start to get some pain, they'll say, oh, God, you know, I know someone of my sister-in-law, God, she ended up with crutches, couldn't walk, or she was in a wheelchair. And um, so there are some common misconceptions, I think, with pelvic girdle pain. So alleviating some of those fears is really important. What are some of the key signs and symptoms you see? Knowledge of the of the most common symptoms and, and sort of risk factors for pelvic girdle pain can really help you guide yeah, your examination. So those risk factors for those patients um, that might, those risk factors for those, pa- those pregnant patients, sorry, might be that they're pregnant for the second, third or fourth time or that they've experienced pelvic girdle pain in, in previous pregnancies. Um, and those with a history of low back pain before pregnancy is another risk factor. Also being overweight, being in jobs that are physically demanding or going through any kind of emotional distress in, in their personal life can be risk factors for um, pelvic girdle pain. So it's good to be aware about those. But when it comes to the clinical presentation of, of pelvic girdle pain, um, so the onset of pelvic girdle pain can happen any point during pregnancy, but it often will occur between 18 and 36 weeks. Um, And pelvic girdle pain coming from the SIJ will typically be described as a dull ache around the sacrum and and buttocks. And this might be on one side or it might be on both. And also patients will describe pain referring into their lateral thigh or groin area. And patients will often describe a feeling of giving way on that side of pain. They also um, will report leg pain as well as numbness and tingling. And that often radiates down the back of their leg, which can mimic lumbar radiculopathy or, or sciatica. So it's really important in those patients to do a, a full neuro examination, um, including you know, your manual strength testing, your sensory and reflex testing when it comes to examination, which we'll go through a little bit later. But um, yeah, and, and patients with pelvic girdle pain, more so coming from the pubic symphysis on the other hand, which also keep it in, keeping in mind pubic symphysis dysfunction and sacroiliac joint dysfunction can coexist at the same time um, but pubic synthesis dysfunction um, they'll more so describe pain in their lower abdomen and their pubic bone and um, they often feel pain in in the groin or pelvis with weight bearing and walking 
And as a result, they develop a more sort of a prominent waddling gait mm. pattern. Yeah. So they will also describe pain and weakness when lifting their legs and pain rolling over in bed. That isn't always relieved with cessation of movement and pul- and usually palpation over the joint may elicit some really, really exquisite pain. pain. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, both conditions will show pain getting up and down from chairs and rolling over in bed or getting in and out of cars. So um, they can share some similar symptoms as well. Okay. So in your examination process, in the webinar, you talked about assessing load transfer. Um, I was just wondering, how do you assess that? Do you have specific functional tests that you perform and and what are you actually looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, we might even, when it comes to examining for pelvic girdle pain, even before you're doing those specific load tests, it can be really really important and and helpful to start your examination even when you're seeing the patient for the first time getting up out of the chair in the waiting room and when they they're walking down into into your treatment room so just looking for um i guess altered gait patterns and and looking like ash mentioned before that waddling that waddling gait um and and important to i guess when it comes to examination of, of of acknowledging that i guess we're not necessarily examining for pelvic girdle pain. So pelvic girdle pain is what they're presenting with. So what we're examining for are all those differential diagnoses that fall under that umbrella term of pelvic girdle pain. So the most common areas of dysfunction will be, like Ash mentioned, the sacroiliac joint and the pubic symphysis joint, Um, but there can be so many, many others. But so you want to, I guess, think about pelvic girdle pain of not not necessarily having one gold standard test that that you're going to use in clinic, but rather a combination of provocation, palpation, load transfer tests, the active and passive movements that'll, I guess, help you zero in and identify that area of dysfunction. So it's important from that first moment you you meet your patient to be looking for these things, especially through that that whole whole pelvic mechanics, the way they're getting up out of the chair, the way that they're walking, and so I guess when it comes to the... Particularly load transfer yes, tests. Yes. Um, so I suppose how they, yeah, how they transfer um, that load onto the sort of the lower extremities, we use active straight leg raise and also stalk testing. So, um, yeah, they're, they're really good tests to um, assess load transfer. So active straight, straight leg raise in particular is... Yeah, just a really important um, important functional test, which assesses that ability of that SIJ to transfer load from lumbar sacral spine to lower extremities, like I said. So, and that one's just uh, getting a patient to lie supine and lifting each leg, usually one at a, at a time, and pain or sensation of one or both of the legs feeling heavy or difficult to raise is then is then noted. And a positive test is described when pain or sensation of that leg being heavy is at least partially or completely relieved with some externally applied pressure. So um, it's usually that medially directed pressure at the level beneath the iliac crest. So you're compressing that SRJ and reinforcing it with your hands and adding in that stability, which is taking away the pain. So that's a positive test. And then the other load transfer test we use is a standing stalk test, which is a great functional assessment um, to do to uh, assess the load transfer on the weight bearing leg. So stalk test involves palpation of the PSIS and the anominent on the side of the pelvis to which weight is being transferred for single leg support while your, your other hand palpates centrally in the sacrum at S2. And this is a bit hard to describe over a podcast, but hopefully I'll do my best to explain. <laughs> We're using our hands. We're using, using our hands, hands as we're doing this. But, um, yeah, the structure. So so then the, the direction of, of bone ma- motion or lack of bone, bone motion is then palpated at the, the contralateral, when, when, sorry, the contralateral foot is lifted off the ground. So the other foot is lifted off the ground. So negative is no movement. S2 and PSI should remain at the same level when you first palpated. But positive is that upwards motion of the PSIS relative to the sacrum. And in pelvic girdle pain, usually um, multifidus and, and gluteus maximus, contraction is is significantly delayed on the on the symptomatic side of pelvic girdle pain compared to the asymptomatic side when doing a stalk test or active straight leg raise and so that delayed contraction would suggest a change in in the motor control on the symptomatic side in patients with pelvic girdle pain with the with the delayed activation possibly diminishing that effectiveness of the stabilizing mechanisms at the the SIJ so delayed activation of glute max may have 
yeah, altered the compression of the SRJ. And this all leads to diminished or, or altered load transfer. So this weakness, that I think, is something that we need to address as osteos in the management plan of, of yeah, pelvic girdle pain patients. Um, I guess when you're looking, before you even start um, applying that specific examination, it's so important to be mindful of those like Ash, we've talked about before, when it comes to, to the normal physiological changes that happen in pregnancy, so that, you know, increased lordosis, that anterior pelvic tilt, and we're keeping in mind those hormonal changes that are occurring, that relaxin is circulating through their system, it's softening the ligaments, the cartilage is softening, and as osteos, we obviously may, we may not be able to, to see that softening. We may not be able to see that widening, but what we see clinically is asymmetry. So if we're heightened to think about yeah, checking levels of greater trochanter, PSAS, yep. we're looking for that, that asymmetry and that can give us, I guess, a, an understanding of, of what's happening um, through that pelvis, that, that those maladaptive behaviours or positioning of joints that changes in pregnancy. So you get, um, I guess you get those clues and those insights when you look for asymmetry, you're like, okay, well, obviously there's altered mechanics here. And then you apply those specific examinations to give you an idea of areas of dysfunction. Yeah, and I think even in those asymptomatic patients that have asymmetries, I think it's really important to address those asymmetries early because uh, it has been shown that it can cause pelvic girdle pain later on as a predisposing factor. So, yeah, I think it's important to do all these load transfer tests and all the, like a proper examination, even if they're not having any pain, just to address early. Okay. Do, do you find you can usually manage a woman with pelvic girdle pain just doing hands-on, you know, osteopathic manual therapy or do you generally always prescribe some exercises as well? Yeah, that's a good point because I think a, a combination of manual therapy and exercises is, is always best. So, they, I mean, they complement each other so well. So you might, you know, be doing a great job in clinic treating um, those, those areas of dysfunction and creating a real positive change in the body, but those muscular imbalances can quickly create issues in the pelvis and lower back again so um, that's why at home rehab rehab exercises they can almost allow the um i guess the impact of treatment the effects of treatment to to last longer between treatments for patients and there are some some isometric contraction exercises um like glutes like so so clam exercises they can even have an, an analgesic effect so patients actually feel a lot better after doing them. Um, and I guess we're particularly heightened here in, in Melbourne um, and during lockdown, we definitely noticed that, you know, with gyms being closed and Pilates and pools not being open, just how much of an impact this is having on, on pregnant and, and postpartum women. Um, yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, like I think that the, the patients that are able to exercise during pregnancy, they, they tend to cope better overall. You know, they've got this great outlet which boosts their mental health and they've got that really good serotonin, endorphin boost, and they feel that they're taking an active role in keeping themselves healthy and in I think pregnancy. That, that, yeah, and I think they've got that, that pre-baseline um, kind of, activation already with their pelvic stabilizers so you know just being physically active even just pre-conception and whatnot can get yeah, really helpful yeah it's, yeah and look and we find that we're oh sorry Em. oh no i was we, just gonna we, say it's just having it's such a having such a widespread huge impact on people not being able to exercise and i think yeah, for, for some people that don't feel as confident maybe doing home exercises that want to be supervised in a yeah, group or a small group clinical pilates um, particularly if they are in pain, um, that can be quite detrimental as well. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've noticed we're taking probably more time in, in the osteo treatment sessions to go over even some specific exercises and stretches that they can be doing at home. Um, so at least if we've observed them doing it in here and they feel confident doing it in the treatment room, then you feel confident that, yeah, they can do this they can do this unsupervised at home. Uh, and, and we find that as soon as you, you know, you suggest an exercise or, or stretch, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you think, you know, they're, they're ex yeah. excellent, they're compliant patients. They're really happy to take that, obviously, that active role in helping themselves. So, um, yeah, hopefully hopefully once we're out of lockdown. And hopefully we can... gyms open soon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one day. One day. One day. If you, if, if um, hypothetically we don't feel confident maybe prescribing exercises, would you, yep. 
recommend to, you know, Pilates clinic or physio or yeah. exercise physiologist? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's such an important thing that we need to adjust, like like I said, pre, um, during and post postpartum. So, yeah, it's, it's a really good adjunct to, to osteotherapy, I think, that hands-on. And, yeah, if you've had, obviously, if, you've, if you feel confident in prescribing those exercises, go for it. But if you don't, I definitely think, um, yeah, just within your own scope of practice, just feeling confident to, to refer to someone to really get those pelvic stabilizers and, and core firing and pelvic floor as well, um, yeah, pre, during and after. Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a few Pilates, especially that, um, you know, market themselves as pre or postnatal that, that are physios. So I'll often um, ask patients, you know, did they have somewhere in mind close to home and and if they don't we've got a couple around us that we can actually have a chat to those Pilates instructors and just feel confident that obviously that they have the experience of um of prescribing these exercises for pre and uh, peri and postnatal you know there unfortunately sometimes you will get reports of patients that have gone to a Pilates class and doing things that you sort of think oh yeah that's not indicated or that that wouldn't be great for pelvic girdle pain so I think as part of your overall management with your patients through pregnancy it's really important to to ensure that you've got that communication with that Pilates instructor or their PT to have that confidence that they're not going to do things that will aggravate um, their specific musculoskeletal condition yeah co-management I think is great yeah that's great advice. And I think patients feel a lot of confidence in us if they can see that we, you know, are willing to um, work together with other practitioners oh, or um, yeah, they, yeah. they really appreciate it. So I think that's a really good way to strengthen your bond with your patient. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Are there any techniques or treatment approaches you find particularly beneficial for women suffering from pelvic girdle pain? Yeah. So as a general rule, um, we just want to apply key osteopathic principles. So aim to restore motion in order to improve those altered forces through the body and just yet yeah, to create that positive change, but especially addressing those altered forces through the pelvis and lumbar spine by giving exercises to reinforce, like I said, those pelvic stabilizers and core muscles is really, really important. And like I said previously, we just want to address those asymmetries that we find early. Um, so for, for pelvic girdle pain in particular, key areas um, that we like to address is definitely pelvic floor. Um, so tension can create sources of pain, but also prevent optimal pelvis motion and functioning and, and tightness. And especially in the lead up to, to um, labour and when they've got a really, really tight pelvic floor, it's really important that they learn to relax their pelvic floor as well. So um, Kegel exercises are great for strengthening, but you also want to teach them how to relax their pelvic floor. Yeah, and I think it's really important, you know, for osteos to know that we can we can address the pelvic floor externally. So if you haven't, you know, done in, a course to know how to internally release the pelvic floor, you can actually do heaps um, externally and you can have them on their side and you can release obturator and you can release through the, the pelvic floor and you can actually palpate to know how they're contracting and how they're relaxing. So, um, so you don't have to worry, you don't have to know how to do an internal yeah. exam to be able to address the pelvic floor. And if you think about fascial connections and, um, and ways obviously with working through the sacrum and the addressing any lumbosacral mechanical issues, you will be impacting that pelvic floor and you will be impacting the pubic symphysis by, by doing that. Yeah. And create yeah, a lot of positive change there. I think a, um, another great area to address is the glutes. So the glutes have to work really hard to accommodate those changes in the pelvis. So they'll develop a lot of trigger points and sometimes they can't keep up with that increased load. So they can become quite weak. So making sure you do, you're doing those isometric glute contraction um, exercises early as well, because delayed glute activation may alter that compression of the SIJ. So make sure if we are releasing glutes with treatment, we're also giving them activation exercises to do at home, like we were talking about before. So just gentle hip abduction, adduction, extension can all help greatly and enhance pelvic stability. But um, you want to more so do isometric contractions um, initially as well. It's really important. So we're not changing the length of that muscle um, and we're not irritating any pelvic girdle pain. Um, but yeah, it's also important not to just look at the pelvis but look above and look below and the, and the whole picture so we um, I think both Dan and I look a lot at the, at the diaphragm so the diaphragm obviously gets really tight throughout pregnancy but 
can also implicate um, or it affects the, the pelvic floor diaphragm. So they work together and they're sort of synchronized when we breathe. So addressing one can help the other and allowing the diaphragm to move freely can also really assist with rib cage expansion and, and help with low back pain in pregnancy as well. Yeah, and just remember too, when it, when it comes to formulating your treatment plan, you, you may feel like you want to address all the areas of dysfunction. However, from both Jen and I's clinical yeah. experience, we um, <laughs> don't, 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 don't address all. everything. Yeah. <laughs> a so bit, we've just a bit less is more. A bit exactly. of less is more, exactly. definitely, with, definitely with pregnancy. And just not, yeah, just not bombarding them with, with all, every single technique. Um, yeah. especially when you know that those those postural changes that are occurring like that the, they are necessary for the growing uterus and baby so um, even though they can you know unfortunately like I said you know almost half of women um, can then present with musculoskeletal issues you you still don't want them um, uh, I guess you don't want to feel like oh I found a rotation here I found a hypertonic muscle here yeah. I found a restriction here I'm going to treat it all like you're allowed to leave <laughs> leave some yeah. things there just and just yeah really focus on that that's why I think when we come back to that examination it's so important you want to focus on you know where is the main area of dysfunction here yeah. and by addressing that um, I'm going to create a positive change but I'm not going to you know decompensate. Yeah. yeah yeah and then yeah. the patient falls in falls into a heap we don't want that. We, we don't, don't want, want that. that. No. We don't want that. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> well, that, well, that sort of leads on to, oh, no, I'll ask, you may have covered a little bit of this, but do you have any go-to exercises or stretches you commonly find helpful? Uh, yeah, I suppose we've, we've kind of gone through that. But, um, yeah, I suppose, like I said, those isometric abductor adductor exercises of the, of the hip to do some pelvic stabilizing stuff um and yeah I think just in terms of exercises really getting onto those rehabilitative exercises early in pregnancy um which are going to help the changes of um that that pelvic mechanics and and hopefully prevent them from getting pelvic girdle pain down the track so yeah really addressing those pelvic pelvic and um, stabilizing muscles Okay. And what about stretches? Yeah, I, we, I tend not to, and both Dan, Dan and mm. I do the same thing. We tend not to give um, too many stretches. Uh, just, I suppose, just engaging a stretch instead of get, going to the end range. Because um, obviously with pelvic girdle pain or pubic symphysis stuff, um, you know, real, that wide separation of the knees, if you're going to stretch adductors and whatnot, can really flare it up. So we tend to more give um, sort of dynamic mobility exercises as opposed to stretches um, as we tend to think that, yeah, it doesn't flare them up as much, I think. Yeah. So some gentle mobility work instead of, and yeah, just sort of engaging the stretch instead of end range stretches. That's it. Like, like help. yeah, like Ash was saying, if you've got you know someone that's coming in with you know piriformis syndrome or or you know major restrictions through their their SI, and then you want to stretch that piriformis syndrome, the piriformis muscle, but to get them to put their ankle on the knee and separate the pubes, in, like that could aggravate them so yeah. even though your desired outcome is to stretch the area um you know advising them of certain positions to do that it, it wouldn't be beneficial for them but yeah. like i was just saying that dynamic mobility exercise uh instead can be can be a good go-to yeah. go-to great yeah. yeah dynamic mobility and some gentle stability that's good that's yeah that's yes it. yeah perfect <laughs> and if you have a client that comes in and they're really really irritable um yeah and you think they might be too irritable for manual therapy at that time, um, how do you sort of deal with that initial management of trying to settle them down? Yeah, yeah, it can be really challenging, and especially, you know, early on if you're not, um, I guess, seeing a, a lot of pregnant women when they come in. You know, we'll have women come in in wheelchairs um, and in crutches, on crutches, dealing with, you know, quite debilitating PGP. So I think overall there's, there's still an opportunity with osteotreatment to, to create some change and help with their pain levels, even in the, those most acute patients. So, yeah. you know, and, and trying to underestimate the, um, the importance of reassurance and education in these patients, you know, it might even be just advising them on sleeping posture, getting in and out of bed and things to help prevent worsening um, of their symptoms. Yeah, so I think education is definitely yeah. the key with the really yeah. intense acute pelvic girdle pain patients. So you may not necessarily, you know, be going through it, you know, you're, you're, you're normal, I guess, you know, osteo exam, 
uh, and treatment. You know, I've had patients come in where they might just, you know, hobble in and sit on the edge of the bed and on the treatment table. And, you know, you can still do a, a neuro exam um, and obviously making sure that you're covering all red and yellow flags. But, you know, you may choose to just do, you know, a BLT of their SI, you know, they, I've had patients, you know, they're fully clothed and I'm just trying to create some positive change and you'd be surprised just, just helping, um, I guess, modify those pain levels will, will help them overall, you know, and you may even not even treat the pelvis. You might look at, like, I know we keep on talking about the diaphragm, but you might release through the diaphragm or, you know, do some rib raising where you can, you know, improve their sympathetics and, and just, you know, for these patients that don't really have any other pain relief options available to them, you know, don't underestimate those those little techniques, even though you might feel like, oh gosh, I really haven't been able to create a huge change here. For that patient who's in constant pain, it can actually make a, a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And I think um, even fitting a, a, a pregnancy belt properly and yep. giving them some really simple ergo advice, how they're, they're sitting down, like Dan was saying, getting up and down from chairs, rolling in and out of bed that can in itself can just really help a flare up and, and really reduce some of their pain levels. So yeah, I definitely think education yeah. in those acute patients are, are sometimes even better than hands-on. <laughs> mm. Can you, could you tell us how you would advise a woman to get out of bed or is that too hard to do over a podcast? You find that they're probably most likely side-lying sleep and they typically have a pillow between their knees and a, and a wedge under their, their um, abdomen. So it's, it's really important to try to keep those knees together. Um, so if you can use your upper body to push up on that side-lying position and get into a seated position first. And so swing the legs swing off the a legs little bit off. and yep. then slowly sort of wedge yourself up with your elbows and then push yourself up onto your hands. Yeah. And I get them to just wait a, a minute as well. I actually had a patient this morning that was describing that nauseous, dizziness feeling of when she was asleep with that compression of the um bub on the, the uterus on the vena cava so she said oh, I was feeling so rotten when I opened my eyes so you know I said she said to make sure you sit up and just wait just a little while for your body to wake up and resettle first before you stand up so you know it might it's a bit difficult when they might be rushing to go to the bathroom but if yeah, that's they can, normally the problem but it's just that matter of just giving yourself that time let those you know your body sort of wake up a bit before you you go to stand up and just taking you know small steps to begin with um, you know, leaning on things around them. We just obviously that can be a false risk for those that are, you know, yeah. quite with quite debilitating BGP. But um, just taking their time and 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 uh, not not rushing. And I think trying to get them to actually activate some of those little muscles. So even just basic mm. core activation before they actually push themselves up is a good thing yeah, to do as well. Okay. So we're going to j- uh, move on to a bit of a chat about some sciatica. So, oh, yeah. yeah, patients will often present saying that they're getting sciatica. Um, how, how can you see this present in your practice? Yeah, sure. So you're spot on there, Emily, when it comes to like patients saying they've got sciatica because the language um, that they use can be a little bit tricky because they'll often, you know, use the term quote-unquote sciatica to describe any pain that travels from that posterior hip down the buttock and into the leg. But, you know, as we know, it's not necessarily irritation of the sciatic nerve that's that's causing that referral Um, and it may not be disbulged either so it's essential to distinguish that cause of referral of pain down the buttock and into the leg so there's not there's not actually um, unfortunately a heap of research into musculoskeletal pain in pregnancy but what there is actually suggests that sciatic is not a common cause of pelvic and leg pain Mm. in pregnancy I mean it it can happen and we do see it and I guess the most common cause is uh, typically piriformis syndrome so you can have compression of that static nerve. If you think about that anterior tilt of the pelvis, it'll increase that piriformis strain and put direct pressure on that static nerve, giving you pain and those um, neurosymptoms down the leg. But so for, I guess any patient presenting with, with those symptoms, you need to do a full neuroscreen uh, and important to rule out uh, lumbar disc have. Yeah, which the, the incidence of a disc bulge um, just to note too, like it isn't necessarily higher for pregnant women than non-pregnant women. So 
um yeah just to keep that in mind as yeah. well yeah i think we sort of often feel like any pain down the leg or is going to be dysbiosis but it's actually not not yeah. the more common or cause. even that pregnant women might be more predisposed to getting dysbiosis yeah. but they yeah they seem to think that it's the same um yeah the same incident so but for, i guess for, for those patients that that have a previous history of a disbulge or they may have an active disbulge at the time of pregnancy i think it's can be really helpful to discuss with them the anatomy of where their baby is positioned so that they understand okay the baby's not necessarily sitting on my disc but rather that obviously the changes in loads and pressures of pregnancy they can exacerbate that that disbulge yeah um a good little um tidbit though is on phys exam if you're wanting to differentiate sciatic neuropathy from a lumbar disc bulge, the sensation of the posterior thigh is usually intact um, because that's innervated by the um, posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, which comes off the plexus inferior to the sciatic nerve. Um, so that can so be helpful in your examination. Yeah, they'll still be able to feel it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it's good to know, though, if you're seeing postpartum um, patients that can have sciatic nerve damage in labour. Um, so the mechanism of injury there could be a stretch injury. So especially if they've had a prolonged second stage, so that, that real tough stage of labour where they might be in that um, lithotomy or tailor position. So it's where they're most likely on their back with their knees in that externally rotated position for a long period of time. So that can stretch uh, the sciatic nerve. Uh, and it can actually happen in C-section as well. So in cesareans, um, if they're in theatre, they can have uh, like a left lateral tilt position that they use that can compress all the glute structures and, and can compress the sciatic nerve too. So that can happen. Yeah. If we feel like the sciatica could be due to the baby's position, is there mm -hmm. any techniques or approaches we can that can be used to shift the baby's position? Yeah, so that's interesting again with that language of shifting, shifting babies. So um, you'll you, you'll often hear women will will describe their their sciatic pain or pelvic pain or, or lower back pain um, being worse with the baby being in a certain position, mm. um, especially that OP. So that's that um, the occiput posterior position. But it's quite interesting that you know the theory is that the baby's occiput is pressing against the mother's spine and surrounding structures, including that sciatic nerve. Um, and there's also a, a degree of deflection of the baby's skull. So it presents a larger diameter as it enters and progresses through the pelvis. So that's the theory, but there's actually very little evidence to support this theory. Um, there's actually been a study uh, that was done by a group of midwives and OBs investigating baby's position and pain in pregnancy and birth. And those women that were interviewed um, reported that they had received advice that the babies were turned around or facing the wrong way and, and that that was the cause of their back pain in pregnancy and labour. So these women were told that they sort of accepted that association um, and that that was the reason that they had back pain. And so, and then they even adopted some of that language by saying, oh, my baby was in posterior position. And so it just showed that influence of being told that that then they thought well then they were assured that that was the reason for their um their pain but there's just not the evidence to suggest it so yeah. that's why I guess it's yeah I just think it's, it's so important, important as osteos to to not just accept that the baby's position is the definitive cause for their pain and just to mm. be mindful to look at all possible mm. differential diagnoses yeah yeah I mean you hear it you'll hear you know the amount of pregnant women we see they'll say oh my pain was so bad especially if they've had like three or four, yeah. they were like, oh, the one that was posterior, that was the worst. So you do hear it clinically. You, you, you definitely do um, hear women's report of that. It's just hard when the, the evidence isn't there to, to support okay. it. Yeah, but it's, um, and then you'll hear them say that, oh, Bub's was, the position was changed and that alleviated my pain. So, you know, you sort of think, well, obviously if they were lying, if the baby was lying transverse or in that posterior position and then they moved, you know, they may not necessarily have been on the nerve and then they're off the nerve. It's more likely that those the pressures, the altered pressures yeah, of okay. the pelvis. Yeah. 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 But it's, I, um, yeah, I was, I recently saw a woman and I'd seen mm. her something else sort of earlier and she was pregnant and then she came back a while later and she's like, oh, I was getting the worst sciatica and my whole like left side of my back and pelvis and hip was locking up and she ended up seeing yeah. a physio and he said, oh, the baby's sitting on your nerve. It's the baby's position. 
And then yeah. apparently he did a technique and showed her husband how to do it to, you know, move the baby's position. I was like, oh, show me this technique. She's like, oh, I don't yeah. know what it was. He sort of it was like putting his hand up near my bum or something and then pulling down and then that seemed to work. I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think like it's probably, you know, again, important to revisit that turning babies because you yeah. know we, we will sometimes have women come in and say oh I heard that you guys can you know yeah. <laughs> move my baby and stuff and I think you know it's so important with our language that we assure them that you know when it comes to a true ECV like what, yeah what we do not do ECVs <laughs> we're not doing that we're not doing that you know that yeah, that's like a, a full medical procedure yeah, yeah yes you know. Like, you know, and like we say, like, it's important to stay, you know, within our scope of practice and say, you know, knowledge, like we don't do that, but we, you know, we can still play an important role of, especially for women that might be booked in for an ECV, that then if we can see them on the day or the day before to just look for areas of tension or restriction in the rib cage, pelvis. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think and- we've got a really important role to see them before their ECV yeah. and see okay. if we can create that change so that ECV works a bit better. Mm. All right. So no sneaky osteo ECVs then. No, definitely not. No, not now. I think we really, and especially when we've seen it, like I've seen a true one. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I've heard they're pretty, pretty epic. So painful, and you know the baby's monitored the whole time because there's a chance of them getting in distress, and you know it's it's. I think that's why when you see someone like holding an abdomen and that you know it's really gentle, being like I'm just turning the baby. Like when you see what an obstetrician actually does, (laughs) yeah, it's so intense and so yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, they don't always they don't work. They don't have a great success rate either. So you know, it's quite an an intense process for a woman to go through. And then you know, they might you know, I've heard patients that say they get up off the table, go walk to the car park, and they can feel the baby like shifting and moving. Yeah, yeah, right after. So. Yeah. Um, I've heard of a few women that have, you know, had a, an attempted ECV and it hasn't been successful. And then when the baby's mm-hmm. born, they realise that the cord's really short. And so it's like, oh, well, yeah. it's not turning. Yeah. There could be a good reason for that. Absolutely. For yep. sure. Yep, for sure. All right. So moving on to, so some women will, will come in and seek osteopathic care to help prepare their body for labour and birth. Um, without actually potentially having any aches or pains, how would you approach this? Yeah, so um, as osteos, we might be uh, like, yeah, the first person, or oh, sorry, not the first one, the, the, the person we the most, the most yeah. in their pregnancy, <laughs> and especially in the lead up to their birth. So we have lots of time to, to you know, to talk to them about the big day and, and try to, um, yeah, prepare them for birth. And I think it's, it, it's so important to take the time to talk with patients um, about their own ideas about labour and especially if they if they are symptomatic, you know, so if they have particular musculoskeletal conditions and they're really worried it's going to impact their ability to have, you know, an optimal birth outcome. Um, so I guess in those, you know, in cases of pelvic floor dysfunction, if the patient, you know, sort of at that 35-week mark and they've gotten the okay and all clear from their physician or their midwife, we can take them through some self-perineal massage to help reduce their risk of tearing or the need for an episiotomy, especially if they've had it yeah. had it before. And I think um, women suffering from pelvic girdle pain in particular, we often discuss birthing options and strongly encourage them to discuss that with their midwife or, or their obstetrician well before their due date. So because women don't have to labour on their back with their legs in prolonged external rotation or in stirrups, I think that's just sort of something that a lot of women will just think they have to do, just labour on their back. Or seen in the movies. Yeah, so. seen in the movies. <laughs> so that, yeah, just to, yeah. to let them know they've got options and to discuss that with their midwife or their obstetrician. Yeah, especially, you know, I guess in patients that aren't symptomatic and they've got a non-complicated pregnancy, you know, you can see throughout history there's images that show women, you know, actively birthing in positions to use gravity to facilitate that downward movement of the baby. So, you know, and this is a strategy that can help improve efficiency and um, reduce that maternal fatigue as well. So, and look, studies have shown that, you know, compared to lying on their back, uh, the dimensions of the pelvic outlet are wider in that squatting or kneeling or standing position. So, you know, have this chat with their with their midwife or their obstetrician, like ask them, you know, is this an option for me? Can we look at, you know, a standing birth? Can we look at a squatting birth? And if they've got, you know, a birthing partner, it can be great for them to be aware of obviously different positions as well. So they can practice and prepare for that before, before the big day. Um, and, you know, another option with that, 
with a squatting um, birth position, when you compare even on tiptoes or, or feet flat to the ground, you know, feet flat from the ground is, you know, it will provide for optimal pelvic mechanics. Uh, so it's good just to have a chat with them about this before yeah. uh, and in preparation for the birth too when it comes to pain pain relief you know if they want to use a, uh, a TENS machine I always suggest you know Mash and I always say you know make sure that you know how to use it before yeah. your due you don't, date you don't want to be fiddling around <laughs> yeah. for the first time when you're in labor that's for sure so just yeah figuring out how it works at the you know the leading the weeks leading up to to birth <laughs> yeah actually I had a patient like last week texting trying to find out where you can find pads I think there must have there must have been like for the tennis sh- machine yeah yeah so she eventually found them from some pharmacy but it's just great to be you know, have have all the tools in your toolkit ready to go and yeah. make, sure <laughs> yeah, make sure they work. But there are definitely things that we can do uh, technique treatment wise as well of that education in leading up to the birth. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to talk about them? Well, is there any is there any particular techniques? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I suppose yeah, in the lead up to the due date. Um, obviously that lumbar lordosis will be at its peak. So it's it's important to address the, the lumbar sacral mechanics to ensure optimal nutation and counter-nutation of the sacrum. And some specific structures to address might be like the, the sacrotuberous ligament, um, so tension through that or um, respir- respiratory sacral technique um, using some MET techniques through the, through the sacrum. And really encouraging, I think, pelvic floor relaxation is so, so important. And it might... Um might seem a bit out there but treating the tmj will help with pelvic mechanics so you want to look at alter mechanics through their jaw um so there's a strong embryological and fascial connection as well as craniosacral connection for with the tmj and the um, pelvis so by actually improving tmj mechanics you can have an impact uh, on pelvic floor uh, and the overall pelvic mechanics and allow for those structures to soften and widen so um, I guess that state of relaxation of the mouth is directly linked to, for the ability for that cervix and, and vagina to open to full full capacity uh, so yeah in, in birthing classes actually women um, are encouraged to relax and open their jaw to aid in, in opening that pelvic bowl so yeah they take that that deep grunting sounds that they make um, yeah it's it's in correlation to their pelvic floor as well Mm. Um, and I guess like we mentioned before, you know, looking at different birthing positions, if, if uh, they're keen to, to uh, birth in that squatting position, it can be really helpful uh, as osteopaths to note the foot posture. So it has that biomechanical impact on the lumbar curve and pelvic orientation, like I said before, that tiptoes versus flat feet. So I guess in the lead up to their due date, you want to ensure that, you know, there's no restriction through their calves and you're getting optimal talocrural mechanics. Um, so again, they're going in match fit and they can, you know, physically maintain a desired birthing, birthing position. Yeah, and, and they might want to give birth on all fours or standing up, but sometimes it doesn't go to plan. So if they end up on their back, you really want to ensure that they've got, you know, good external rotation to their hips and posterior rotation of their pelvis, can mutation, mutation of the sacrum also. And I know we, diaphragm. we, keep, we keep rambling on about the diaphragm, but it really is important. So, um, Has that come across yet at yeah. all? Yeah. Are you hearing that there? <laughs> just one, just one small. Just one small. Just one small for the, the, the kids right. at home. Yeah, the diaphragm. Definitely okay. diaphragm. Real team yes. diaphragm. Real team yeah. diaphragm. So I, I found, I know some people it creates more fear for them, but I found when I was pregnant, like the more I could learn, the better. The more knowledge I had, I felt really empowered, and I just yeah. walked into my birth feeling super confident, even though it went completely pear shaped, and. Yeah. Um, so I found that really helpful. So do you guys have any sort of favorite resources that you might direct women to that are, that are interested in learning some more about birthing options? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Ray Dempsey classes. So there's lots of yep, online yep. courses and classes. And I think, you know, there's some great classes that talk about, you know, not, not being afraid of the pain and not you know, I know it can be, you know, there are some women that, that don't want to feel the pain and I completely yeah. get it. And I think too, as osteos, you know, sometimes people think, oh, we're anti-epidural or we're, you know, like, yeah, it's like whatever you need whatever to do works. and whatever is going to happen on the day. But I think, you know, just that reassurance that, you know, your body, even though, you know, they may be in pain and they, they there may be a lot of dysfunction, but that you've got that confidence in them that, you know, you will be able to do this and whatever happens, you're in, you know, you're in, 
got great care around you and support around you and your body will be able to do this even if you know if it doesn't all go according to plan. I think that's why it's so important in the lead up to birth too to have some ideas and 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 do the courses and and, and maybe look at hypnobirthing or, or calm yeah, birth classing as but it's okay if it unfortunately does go pear shape yeah. and um you know to try, try not to have that focus on I'm gonna have this type of birth yeah. or I think the high a- expectations Having an idea of your birth plan, but not having set in stone expectations, I think is one it has to be. Nice. It has to be a loose birth plan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spinning yeah. babies as well is a great um, uh, little course that you can do in order to prepare your pelvis in particular for mm. birth as well. So it gives you some exercises to do leading up to birth that can really help with, yeah, pelvis mechanics and whatnot as well. Great. So a lot of my education was based on one born every minute binge watching oh, my pregnancy yeah. I, 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 I was <laughs> oh I just I felt like I could you know deliver a breech footling baby and a shoulder dystocia and oh, I was like I can deliver yeah. my own baby like I know what I'm doing here yeah no, yeah. yeah and it said Australian birth stories like I binge listen to that and I still yeah, listen to it every good. week I get really excited I love it yeah and I think that's it, it things like that you know podcasts like that and stories like that and watching those um shows as well can be so helpful for women to know that everyone's experience is different yep. and and i think you know even if you've got you know you've had one two three four you can have such different birth experiences for all all three and um i think it's important to be mindful of when women come in especially in that postpartum period of being aware even though i know we're, again staying within our scope of practice and knowing that we're not trained psychologists or therapists but the impact of unfortunately of birth trauma yeah. mm-hmm. um, and especially when we may be the first first practitioner to even touch the pelvis and lower back like i remember thinking you know when it comes to psychosomatic and visceral, like all of those connections i didn't really appreciate it until i treated a woman for the first time i probably was maybe 10 years out and even though i treated a lot of pregnant women um she had a significant birth trauma and thankfully her and baby were, were you know survived and and um but what actually happened during the birth was obviously such huge, huge impact on her mental um, health. And when I started just examining, like I literally had hands on, on PSIS when she was standing and I sort of came down to a greater chicana and things that I'd done all through her pregnancy. And, and she just, she just crumbled. She burst into tears. And, and I think just having that association and that hands-on, it brought it all back and she was reliving the the birth trauma in the treatment room. So we just sat in the room and cried for (laughs) and cried along with her and just like I I felt terrible. Like I just wasn't prepared at all that my examination could could trigger that. Um, So I think it's really important, yeah, to just be really mindful. And I'll even explain to them now, like after having that experience of just, is it okay? Even though you may have treated this patient for you know years and years and years, but you know if, when you're seeing them again for that first time, is it okay? My hands are going to be here. Does this feel okay? You know that consent Always for treatment. Consent. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. making sure that you're just like my hands are going to be here. Is this feeling okay? Is it okay here? And, and body language as well, and even eye contact. Eye contact the whole so time. Important. Yeah, that's really good advice. Actually, I think it's only it seems like only more recently that an awareness of birth trauma has really um become more public so yeah we definitely we can play a role in sort of flagging women that you know might be at risk of some ongoing issues from that so that's really good and especially when they've you know they may have had that six-week postpartum check from their doctor or their midwife or their gp and if from a physical point of view yep you're all fine stitches have healed or yep you're not bleeding anymore and then it's like that's it like yeah, women's psychological have, component. Yeah, to them. and there's no follow-up. Like it sort of shifts into the baby. So then you'll have those regular maternal health nurse checks and you'll be following on. And they look, they might screen and flag you at that maternal health nurse appointment, but there's you may not have a rapport with that nurse. It might just be, look, I'm here for the baby, don't worry about me, type yeah. mentality. Um and then women Whereas just us who've seen them for their whole pregnancy and yeah. feel comfortable really sharing their experience. I suppose we, we yeah, I think we can really sort of hone in on that psychological aspect of definitely it. yep and do you have any general self-care tips for women during pregnancy and leading up to their birth 
Yeah, yep. So there's a few things that, you know, outside of our treatment that um, that we find can be really helpful. So just in general, like really good nutrition. So, you know, aim to eat the rainbow and choose meals that can, you know, really bolster your mood um, while still delivering those key nutrients to help you and your baby. Um, and I think um, fibre and water definitely for constipation. <laughs> oh, yes. constipation. No, one, no one tells you about that. No, no, constipation is not your friend at no. all. Um, in pre- and the poop, poop stool, good yeah. idea. Oh, my God, yes, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think little simple things like that is definitely good suggestions or tips to give to your patients. As yeah, well. and even after in that postpartum, yeah. especially with that constipation with a healing perineum. Yes, for sure. Yes. The the um, first postpartum poo. That's yeah. <laughs> oh, that's always, always a, bit a, that's a scary one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, um, but yes, yeah, I suppose other self care tips. Just make sure. Um, I think just general stuff. Making sure towards the end of their pregnancy that you know their body really does start to slow down and prepare for birth. So just not to overcommit to social things once work finishes. Obviously they're finding themselves having heaps more time, but really allowing their body to prepare and rest and really have time for themselves. I think it's a really good tip just to remind patients towards the end of pregnancy. And like you said before, Emily, you know, that being prepared, that educating yourself and feeling empowered and, you know, going in with, with great knowledge, but, you know, lowering that expectation for that quote unquote perfect birth um yeah. you know encouraging workshops that you know give strategies for breathing partner involvement and just i guess having an understanding of the birthing process uh, can be really helpful um, as well as even courses on like you know meditation through pregnancy can really help with cortisol levels and yeah. stress especially that when they've um yeah finished up with work i think meditation is a really really good thing to encourage them to do mm. yeah yeah and if you are flagging patients that maybe you know mentally are struggling, we talked you know about the you know the biopsychosocial implications of pregnancy to just you know re- making sure that they you know c- can reach out um, you know great organisations like Panda or yeah or, Panda's a really good organisation yeah, of just you know I think like I said just not underestimating that mental health of just how important that is in pregnancy and in the lead up lead up to birth. And I think another self care tip as well. I know we've honed in on it, but pelvic floor and core programs just to to strengthen and also to relax those should be encouraged just you know even preconception during and after okay and any other just general exercise advice yeah so and um, i think a lot of mums when it comes to exercise especially for those mums who might be their first pregnancy or they might have had some troubles getting pregnant they're understandably very cautious when it comes to exercise and what they can and, and can't do but the, uh, the importance of exercise, though, through pregnancy and the postpartum period has gained heaps of support in the mm. recent years now. So, yeah, for those un- uncomplicated low-risk pregnancies, moderate activities is yeah, deemed very low risk and has been shown to assist in, in reducing pain in pregnancy and improve overall maternal and fetal health, which we discussed before. So I think it's really important as clinicians that we, yeah, we encourage patients once they've gotten the all clear from their doctor and midwife and, it, and it's safe to do so, to, to really sort of keep active. So, yeah, I think that the current recommendations for uncomplicated pregnancies is 150 minutes of moderate to, to vigorous physical activity per week. And that's spaced over three or more days. And you just want to make sure they're avoiding any kind of um, like contact sports or high altitude stuff like skiing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no heli skiing yeah, then. will be doing, but just in case they want to go on the slopes. Um, yeah, laying on back after 20 weeks. Um, and activities that carry a risk of falling because obviously they're quite unstable in especially in that third trimester yeah um, and we're always always you know erring on the side of caution um you know there's an extensive list of symptoms that patients can present with that will mean that it's no longer safe for them to be exercising so yeah. even though you know at the very beginning their ob or their midwife or gp have said yep you're uncomplicated you've got no underlying conditions you know there's heaps of those conditions too yeah. that they have to you know make sure that they're not um, ticking any of those boxes but then symptoms might develop um so we need to really be aware of them so you know anything where they have any you know trouble breathing dizziness headache with exercising um you know if they've been diagnosed with incompetent cervix or vaginal bleeding or any Anything like that like they have to stop exercising so yeah it's just to do... be routinely screened throughout once yeah. you've gotten the all clear it doesn't mean that you've gotten the all clear for your whole pregnancy so yeah just being mindful to check in you know what We're... exercises they are doing and yeah just to because obviously as osteos we are blessed to see them throughout their whole pregnancy a lot of the time so and we might be that only person that does see them 
you know, really regularly other than obviously their obstetrician. But yeah, I think it's really important, you know, our role to, to be holistic yeah. and, and ask those questions about exercise yeah. as well. So we've got a list of those scary things, you know, in our kitchen. Just like we're always yeah, we do. making <laughs> sure like, I'm ask that question, I'm going to ask that yeah. question. Red flags, yeah. And especially even like during COVID, you know, I've, we've got some patients that might see their OB at 12 weeks and then they might do a telehealth at 20. And then if the scan's all clear and they don't see them until the birth, like yeah. they're not having that regular. COVID has just been really, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. regular fight. And that's why they. Bring them in. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's why you can build even non-COVID times, but during this time that, you know, that that rapport and that um, patients are so keen to come in and have that con- continuity of care. That's what I'm looking yeah. for. Like yeah. feeling like they're seeing the same person every time. Yeah. We've got an understanding of, of where they've come from at the beginning of the pregnancy to where they are now. And, you know, and they, they, they really trust us. They and do. Obviously yeah. Know yeah. And whatnot. Yeah. So we just need to make sure we're up to we're date on with it. the most current <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But no, we really are privileged to be able to play a role in this journey with women and try and have as, you know, the most positive impact that we can. So they, you know, feel like whatever sort of comes their way, they can come out of it as an, you know, an Amazonian warrior. Yeah, absolutely. All about empowering. Yeah. And then they bring their babies in for us to squish. Yes. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode and for working with the OA to further um, our women's health clinical skills. For anyone that hasn't already watched the webinar that Ash and Dan did on the OA website, it's fantastic. And they've also also recently done an article in the Osteo Life magazine. So thank you again, ladies. No worries. And we just wanted to mention too that we are formulating a course too for the. It should be out by the end of the year. Oh, great. get that to you guys at the end of the year amazing that would be wonderful thank you (laughs) no worries thanks em no worries the content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice